All right. Um, so this morning we're going to start on a, a new series, and it's called Christmas Presents. And obviously it's a play on words off of uh, Christmas presents, right? Because uh, when you think of the holiday season, that's one of the things you think of is getting presents. But we want to think more in terms of actually being in his presence. And so uh, that's what we're talking about. And that's important because when you think about the holidays, really when you really boil it down, it isn't really what you get that matters so much. When you think about it, it's who you got to spend it with, right? And so if you have the kind of family you want to be with, you have the kind of people that uh, you want to enjoy, uh, the holidays come down to who, who got together. Now, if your family's a pain and you dread it, right, that changes the whole holiday thing. And it just tells you how important presence is, right? Because people bring with them uh, who and what they are. And when we talk about God, it's important as well because most of the time we think of God for what he'll give us. But we don't think of just being in his presence, enjoying his presence. The old saying in this, uh, in the old Christian circles, was that you were to seek God's face, not his hands. And the idea there is his hands is what he could do for you, but his face is his presence. If you think about that, think back to when you were first in love, uh, and those of you who are married, and think back, remember looking at the person's face? Do you remember just being captured? By the look, and I'll bet you, as you're nodding your heads right there, you're gone. You just went back in time to that place when you first really recognized them and caught them and went, oh, right? And that's presence. That's what we're talking about. And we're talking about uh, experiencing God's presence just like we experience others. So what we're talking about is not just time, but we're talking about quality time, right? Spending quality time with God and uh, doing that through this whole season together. So we thought we'd take this play off of words, and, and we hope you'll have fun with it. We'll do a couple different messages off us. But to capture this this morning, I want to look at the Christmas story a little bit different than what you've heard from it in the past. I want to take us back to a very unique time in Israel's history uh, where they didn't experience his, his presence um, they they actually um, ended up without his presence. And so they wrestled with that. And I think we can glean some things from them and learn some things from them and avoid the same same kind of mistakes. So before we do that, let's pray and then we'll we'll jump into it. Father, as we come this morning, thank you so much for last night. What a marvelous deal, Lord. And when it came together, it wasn't the gifts or the presents donated or the time or the jobs done. It was the fact that there was such joy walking around. There was so fun to watch people interact and, and to see your presence squirt out. And people said, wow, this is spectacular. And Lord, we uh, have seen that many times. And sometimes, Lord, we take your presence for granted. And we shouldn't do that. And I ask this morning that as we talk about presence, whatever place or stage where we're at, you would uh, speak to us about this next month and how we could be in your presence and we ask that you would grant us that great gift, and we ask it in your son's name. Amen. All right. So let's start with this idea. This is found in uh, Psalm 74, 9, and we're going to talk this morning about no presence. And it says this. Came a time in Israel's history where they were incredibly apart from God. And what they said is we are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Have you ever been 
in a dry stretch like that. It's called the desert in Christian experience. Uh, Many writers have captured this and called it the dark night of the soul. The place where it seems like God's absent. You don't hear his voice. He's not there. You cry out and nothing happens. And Israel got to this place and they were crying out and said, not only is this bad, but we don't even know how long this is going to last. That's what makes it terrifying. Have you ever had someone who was awesome or enormous in terms of presence in your life and then they weren't there anymore? Uh, Maybe some of us have experienced that with the death of a parent, right? I know my own dad's gone and then Pam's dad is gone and I really miss him. Uh, We were... I enjoyed him immensely. And just it's just hard to go over the house. He's not there. It's just like, ah. And, uh, or maybe, um, you know, romantic interest. Did you ever, uh, where you had a love interest and then they were gone, right? Something went wrong and, broke, and then they're not there anymore. And there's this enormous gap and you grieve and you try to fix it and you can't fix it. A best friend. Anybody ever have a best friend who was their best friend and then through whatever circumstances no longer is your best friend anymore and you you ache with the loss of that and you no longer get to experience the present uh, a wife or a husband either by divorce or death right you experience that kind of thing a child uh, many of us have children coming back right from college and i know in our household um, we're pretty excited because kayla comes back this friday and uh, so we're, we're kind of pumped about that and just to kind of give you an idea of what presents can do so we did step-by-step step last night, and Matt stayed at the Fallons, and then we picked him up. And when it came to prayer time last night, uh, we were talking, and he says, Hey, Dad, guess what? I said, What? Six more days and Kayla's back. Okay? You know, when you think a, a kid, especially a boy at Christmas, you think about what they want for presents, what they want for all that kind of stuff. But if you boil it down for Matt, what's Christmas all about? Kayla's coming back. Right? And that's the sense of presence that we're talking about that, boy, I get to spend time, you know, with the Lord kind of thing. Uh, for us, Kayla's presence is enormous. Likewise, Israel, Israel knew what it was like to have the presence of God. They uh, not only had his word in the Torah, right? They had the first five books and, and plus some, but they also had his prophets and they also had his temple. And so... Um, and wrapped that all up together, they had his covenant. So they were um, used to, expected, uh, it was normal to be in Yahweh's presence. They weren't called the chosen people for nothing. Right? There was a reason they were called that, because they had a relationship with God. But here's the other side of the coin. They also knew what it was like to lose that presence. Right? They experienced that vacuum that we often experience. Uh, they didn't react well to all the stuff God did. They didn't react well to the prophets. They actually acted pretty violently towards them. And uh, that, didn't, that didn't go over too well. And, uh, and they said, we don't want you to speak to us anymore. We don't want your confrontation. We don't want your truth. We don't want your prophets getting in our face anymore. And so God said, Okay, they won't. So what I want to do is the period we're going to talk about this morning. Take your Bibles now. If you do electronic, you're going to totally wreck my illustration this morning, all right? But take your Bibles and open to Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, all right? And if your Bible's like my Bible, you'll probably have a page that says the New Testament. And then the next page will be the Gospel of Matthew, 
right? So you go from Malachi to Matthew. What's between them is this page, right? Right here. This page, right here, represents 400 years. Think about that. Right here, this gap represents 400 years. To put that into context, the United States of America isn't even 400 years old. We think our history is so enormous and so big and so filled with stuff. We're not, we don't even cover the gap of this page. Right? So if we ever get too full of ourselves, we can be puffed pretty quick. 400 years. And I, what I want to do this morning is look with you at that 400 years. What happened between Malachi and Matthew? Because it's called uh, the intertestament period. That's uh, what scholars put on it. But it's also called another title, which is very uh, revealing. It's called the 400 years of silence. And in that, the prophetic word ceased and the inspired writing of the word ceased. And there was no voice from God for that 400 years. So if you haven't heard from God in a week or two, put that into context. Four hundred years covers the gap. Now, when we say that, we have to qualify a couple things. First of all, just because it didn't look like God was doing anything and it felt like God was far away, the truth is God was doing all kinds of stuff and it was probably one of the most dynamic uh, eras in the history of the world. More stuff was happening biblically and prophetically during that time than almost any other time uh, in the biblical record. It's an amazing stretch of history that is prophesied both in Daniel and in Revelation. And so it wasn't a time of inactivity or a time of uh, lack. There was all kinds of stuff, all kinds of things happening that was going on uh, during this intertestamental or the 400 years of silence. So let's take a, a quick peek at that. So first of all, in terms of Israel as a nation, here's what was going on during that time as a nation. So from uh, 606 to 586, so basically 80 years, this is the downfall of the kingdom. Israel and Judah are both sacked and uh, destroyed as a nation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrians wipe out Israel, the northern ten tribes. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and wipes out Israel. So he, he destroys the country. He destroys the fortified cities. He takes Jerusalem. He levels the walls. He levels the temple. And when we talk about level, we take it down to the floor. It said that the fire in the temple was so intense that the gold that adorned the temple melted and dropped in the cracks. So Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers broke through the stones to get the gold that went into the cracks. That's how leveled it was. Right? They took the whole thing out. And they found themselves in exile in a strange country with a strange language they didn't understand, with strange customs they weren't used to, and they were absolutely PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? They don't know what hit them. Everything they know has been stripped. It is gone. In 536, just 50 years after that, uh, the Babylonian Empire, the greatest empire in the history of the world up to that time, is taken over, the Medes and the Persians take over that empire, and so now there's suddenly enormous political unrest. This is uh, one of the biggest sea changes uh, in the history of the world politically. Uh, and so um, they experience this, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, decrees that now the Jews can go back to their land, and they can rebuild their city, and they can rebuild their temple. 
And so they begin to head back. And so we understand this then as uh, the time of when the temple was rebuilt. That's Zerubbabel, right? Remember, and you, uh, if you read the different books in the Old Testament, it talks all about this and uh, Zerubbabel and the priest Josiah. And they uh, had the temple built. And they said when they saw the temple, there were, there were just a few people left who were old enough that remembered the old, old temple because it had been 70 years. And it says when they saw the new temple, they wept. They didn't look anything like the new temple. And they realized what they had lost. And they were just grieved and um, tore up. And then just a few years later, Ezra shows up. This is the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. And he shows up and uh, he restores the law to Israel. They are now teaching again. They weren't tracking very well. Yeah, they were Jews. Yeah, they came back. But there was a lot of stuff out of sequence and out of sort. And Ezra came back to line it back up. Here's what the law says and get back in line. And you can read how they did that. And then Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the wall of the city because they were very vulnerable. The other nations didn't want them there. And the other nations wanted to keep them messed up and shut down. And so Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the wall. And you can read about that. Fascinating if you want to read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, If you haven't been there in a while. uh, Really interesting reading about rebuilding. So lots of stuff happening. Very a dynamic time. Now, also, if you talk about history and the politics of the world at the time, here's what we're up against. So we talked about the Persian period. That right there you can see is about a 50-year period. And uh, this is when Cyrus reigns and this is when Israel goes back as the nation. So this was the new order after Babylon. You can see that it's not very long, right? It's a, it's a pretty short time. Uh, there, three years. And then ushers in the Greek period. This is Alexander the Great, who in 10 years takes over the whole known world. 10 years. All right? We're talking about a speed and movement of troops that the world had never seen before. And we are talking about he didn't have cell phones, he didn't have laptops, he didn't have tanks, he didn't have wheels, and they did it. Uh, astonishing. And he came up to Israel and was ready to flatten the nation like it had been flattened before. And how the nation was spared is the religious leaders went out and read to him the book of Daniel, which prophesied about a guy who would come from Greece and take over the known world. And Alexander so liked listening to the prophecies about himself that he decided to spare the nation. If you want to look into it, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, just to take a look, but just... They were spared because the guy liked his ego being stroked. All right? Kind of when you rule the world, that can happen. And, um, and so Alexander, but Alexander's rule isn't that long. If you look there, it's just 10 years. And then we usher in the Egyptian period. So what happened? Alexander dies. He's 33 years old. And he dies. And when he dies, he has four generals. Those four generals take the known world and divide up the four chunks. And the one... Uh, who took the Egyptian, that southern part of the entire world, was the Ptolemy, and it became the Ptolemaic reign. And the Ptolemies reigned, and they uh, then influenced uh, Israel. And so suddenly, Israel finds himself under Egyptian rule again, right? Happened once before in their history. And so they're struggling with this and, and how all this would work. Well, the general to the north didn't like that. And uh, so now we usher in the Syrian period. And if you you look at that, um, 
from 23 to 204, so only 19 years was the Egyptian period. Then we usher in the Syrian period. This is, in biblical terms, the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. This Antiochus Epiphanes is the front runner, the model, the stereotype of the coming Antichrist. And so if you want to look into that, it's a fascinating thing to look into. Okay, all things, things for you to look into this morning. Go look it up. Go check it out. And, uh, but Antiochus Epiphanes is the one who came in. He's the one who desecrated the temple. He's the one who put a pig on the altar and set up an idol in the temple. And he is the one that's talked about in, in terms of the Antichrist. And when you read Revelations, he's the model that they talk about. And so this was a, a, a disastrous time. All kinds of people were killed. It was a terrible time of tumult and a terrible time of upheaval and a terrible time of loss. And so again, uh, Israel found itself crying out to God but not having uh, his presence. Then we usher in an amazing era, era, the Maccabees. Uh, We have scripture, but then there's another set of books called the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha is the story of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Growing up Catholic, I'm aware of that. If you wouldn't grow up Catholic, you probably wouldn't be. But if you read the Maccabees and read about the Maccabees, phenomenal deal. A small band of fighting guerrillas, probably the most kick-butt group of guerrillas that have ever existed on the face of the earth, took on the strongest army at the time it then existing in the world and beat them. Okay? Beat them. If you ever want to read about it, man, it's fast. John, you'd like it. It's fascinating reading. All right? Just incredible stuff. And in that period, they overthrew the Syrian government and reestablished, and for the first time in almost 400 years, Israel was an independent nation again. The problem is, look at the dates on there. What do you see on the dates? It didn't last very long. Two years that they were independent. And then this other little group came in and said, Hi, we're from Italy. And uh, we would like to let you know that we're planning to take over the world. And uh, we can do this one of two ways. We can do this the easy way. You just acknowledge that and concede and we'll be fine and we'll make you uh, uh, you know, a region of our government. Or we can do it the hard way and we will wipe you out. Which way would you like to do it? Right? And that's the Roman period. And this is the setup that we run into when you hear the story of Jesus being born in the manger and coming. This is the time period. This is the era. Rome was the iron fist and they ruled the known world. And so Israel, again, is now under uh, difficult, tyrannical rule. They hated it. They resented it. What they started to realize is, you know, we kicked God out. We thought he was awful. But the truth is everything that's replaced him has been way worse. Maybe we should go back to God. And that is the season that Jesus pops in. But there was also some changes within Israel itself that were very significant. So let's look at that before we move on. Um, In the intertestament period, there's some new groups or parties that pop up and we want to take a look at them. First of all was the scribes. Go back to when Jerusalem was ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar. Everything is lost. The only thing they've been able to do is uh, smuggle some copies of the Torah and some of the Old Testament books that were in the writing time to uh, Babylon with them. They now have no temple. They have lost all the sacrifices. They have lost all the rituals. They have lost all the traditions that they know about. And they're in a foreign land. So what they decided is, let's go with what we got. Right? You ever been camping? 
and go camping in a rainstorm, right? What's, what's the, okay, what do we got left, right? And figure it out. That's what they did. Like, what do we got left? And what they had left was his word. And so they became experts in his word. And this group of people right here, the scribes, were known as, when you read in the New Testament, the experts in the law. They were the scribes. They are the ones you hear stories about that the name of Yahweh was so holy that when they were transcribing and they would use a pen and they would write the name of Yahweh, they would break that pen, throw it away, and then start over with another pen. They uh, were phenomenal at this. Most of them had most of the Old Testament in terms of the first five books of the Bible memorized. Not just known, memorized. We are talking highly proficient and skilled in the knowledge of the word. So that group became absolutely essential because they were the only reliable copiers of the word that they had. And that's why the textual criticism to this day is recognized as some of the greatest textual criticism in the history of the world because of its accuracy. So if you wonder how do we know that the Bible's accurate, it's through this. There's another group that emerged and said, you know, it's not just enough to know the word. We got to do the word and the word tells us a lot of these things. But then the question is, how do these laws relate to everyday life? So this became the Pharisees. This is the group of people, the ultra religious group that shows up in the New Testament when we run into the time of Jesus. And they are not just the doers of the word, but the interpreters of the word. So, for example, how that would work is it would say, okay, here's the Sabbath, and here's what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. So, Kim, you are um, going grocery shopping. Here's, when you go to the store, if you go on Sunday, you can only buy this much, and if you buy that much, you're having sin. But if you buy a pound over, you sin. Now you'll have to come and bring a sacrifice because you didn't obey the law. And they had an entire laws, books of laws, off of the law. And so this is called the Midrash. The Hebrew, uh, the um, rabbi, rabbinic teaching that comes out of the study of the law. And the Pharisees were the keepers of that. So they felt they had a high holy office that was very important that they had to be in charge of. That's the group. Um, uh, parenthetically, they were a little full of themselves. Right? But that, that was how they started out. There was another group that said, ah, Okay, the religious, okay, we're Israel. Okay, fine, there's Yahweh. Okay, fine. But you know what? That's not what floats the boat. They let the Pharisees have all the political stuff. They said, you know what matters? Money. You know what matters? Government. You know what matters is control. And so we want to make sure this thing runs. And we want to make sure that whatever we do, however we do it, we prosper by it. And so they became the uh, control. They didn't believe in... Uh, If you read in the New Testament, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in all this stuff. They were your practical people. This is life. Let's get her done. And so they're the people that instituted the offerings in the new temple. And they're the people that said, you know what? These These are the offerings required. The Pharisees, you can only have these offerings. The Sadducees said, yes. And you know what? The offerings that the people bring are not the right offerings. We have to make sure they're sacred, holy offerings. So therefore, we will offer... Our animals, which we know are kosher and, and correct, and then they can only buy our animals. So when you get to Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, 
What they had turned it into as a market was you could only come on a pilgrimage. You had to buy the temple sheep, the temple cows, the temple tax, the temple doves. And then, of course, they made a little percentage off of that for helping you out. That's the Sadducees. We want to run this thing. We're in charge. And that's why it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always warring against each other. Right? Does that make sense now in the historical context? There's another group that said, ah, you're both idiots. This is the Herodians. They said, look, forget this Yahweh thing. Forget the Israel thing. Rome is the power. Whatever it takes to suck up next to Rome, we need to do. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ingratiate ourselves into the rule that Rome has put in place. And that uh, was the person we know as King Herod. Right? Herod was made king of Israel. And to appease the Jews, he married a Jewish wife. And so he rebuilt the temple. Hey, your temple's kind of weenie. Let's make it right. And so he built uh, what is considered uh, one of the most uh, incredible feats of art and architecture in the known world in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews both loved and hated him for it, okay? Because he was a half-breed and he wasn't a true Jew. But the Herodians said, we don't give a lick about the temple. What we care about is Rome and Caesar. And so we're going to ingratiate ourselves into this. And therefore, when Herod wants counsel, he will come to us because he knows we're loyal. And so these were called the Herodians. And so when you read the New Testament, this is the, the group that you're reading about when it says the Herodians, this is the, the people that you're talking about. All right? so, and by the way, you can look in all these three and it's really fascinating stuff as well. So this is what we find in terms of Israel itself as a nation had changed. And there were some institutions that came into play that hadn't, oops, Hadn't been there. Oh, yeah, there we go. Sorry. Well, where did I go? There we go. Hang on here. I went backwards. There we go. New institutions. First was the synagogue. Before the exile, in other words, before Nebuchadnezzar came in and flat, there was no such thing as a synagogue. Because you didn't go to synagogue to worship. Where'd you go? You went to the temple. All right? And the temple was the central focus of the nation. Uh, there was some rough forms of the synagogue. But after the exile, the synagogue became everything because that's where you taught the law. And everything happened in terms of national life came out of the synagogue. So it's where they studied the law. It's where they, the you know news was passed along. It's where gossip was passed along. It became kind of the hub, much as we would know as uh, town halls uh, or in the Midwest taverns where everything happened that way, right? Everything went routed through there. Everything routed through the synagogue. And so that's why when Jesus showed up, it says he went to his hometown and he went into the synagogue, took the scroll of Isaiah, read the scroll of Isaiah, and then said... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. That was in the synagogue. That hadn't happened before. The other group that didn't exist um, is, whoa. Oh, come let us adore him. All right, awesome. The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a ruling group uh, in Israel that didn't exist before but needed to exist because they had to make political decisions and how to interact with all these different entities. And so a group arose that became known as the ruling group in Israel. The Sanhedrin was a collection of the 70 highest, finest within the nation. Wisest, smartest. And so you had a collection of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians in the Sanhedrin. It was a lovely bunch. This is the group 
that made the ruling and the decree that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death, and they put him on the cross. And we're talking about people who really said they cared about God and loved God. So you can see the context in this. This is the environment, this is the um, situation that Jesus enters into when we say Christmas. When that first Christmas happened, when God brought his presence, this is the context in which it came up. So here's the point. They had a lot of stuff. They had a lot of government. They had a lot of business. They had a lot of religion. They had a lot of stuff. A lot of structure. But they were aching and thirsty for God's presence. And you can pick that up when you read. When will God come back? When will God rescue us? When will Messiah come? It was just an ache in their heart. This is summed up well in Psalm 42 where it says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Uh, We don't get that in uh, Seattle because we kind of live in the rainforest and that doesn't make any sense. But if you live in eastern Washington or you lived in the desert, Colorado, um, in a drought season, you can actually watch this where you watch deer and they will go through the land looking for water holes. And you can watch them pant for water holes in a drought type of year. And so... This is, the psalmist is talking off of something like this out of the desert of Judah. It says, but he's not talking about deer. He goes on to say this, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Are we ever going to be together again? My tears have been food day and night while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? You ever felt that? People mocking, Hey, where's your Jesus? I haven't seen him. That's what they're battling with. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Can you hear the ache in that? The looking back and I remember, oh my gosh, I remember what it was like to go to the temple. I remember what it was like singing the Psalms of Ascension as we went up the hill. I remember what it was like to do the sacrifices together. I remember what it was like to be the promised people, His chosen children. I remember what it was like to be under that blessing, to live with that presence. And that's gone. It's gone. Oh, my soul hurts. It aches. It's gone. Here's what I want to say off of that. I want to suggest this morning that one of the things we can learn from it is that trading stuff for God has always historically been a bad deal. Okay? If you're trading stuff for God, if you're trading stuff to fill the hole in your heart for the presence of God, that historically has always been a very bad deal. hasn't turned out well. In Psalm 106, it says this, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Any of us ever rushed ahead of God? I'll take it from here, Lord. Got it. I I, I can handle this one. It says they soon forgot his works. In other words, they forgot his footprints. They forgot his fingerprints. They forgot the blessings he had bestowed. They didn't wait for his counsel, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. He gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. Right? If you, this is the New King James Version, and I picked it 
deliberately because I remember one time a friend telling me, he says, Steve, I got a lot of stuff, but I have leanness of soul. I said, leanness of soul? He said, yeah, it's in the Bible. When you walk away from God and backslide, he'll give you what you want, but what you want destroys you. And you have leanness of soul. And I never forgot that. And I plugged that into this morning's message. If you have NIV or ESV, it'll say a wasting disease. You ever feel like you're just wasting away because you need God's help, but he's not there helping you? Leanness of soul. There are three times in Israel's history, well, there's probably more, but I picked three, uh, where it really stands out that they had leanness of soul. The first one is this scripture right here that we're talking about. This is Moses in the desert. And what it says about them in the desert is they grumbled and they complained. They bellyached. Most of the time it was behind the scenes, but then later on it just burped out in public and it says it absolutely chafed Moses' soul. Well, it chafed not just Moses' soul, but somebody else, God's. It really peeved him off because what they said is, ha, we know why you brought us out in the desert. You promised a land of milk and honey. You know what? You brought us out here to kill us. Look at the flip. Now, we could get on them and say, yeah, those stupid desert wanderers. Have you ever said, God, you haven't come through for me. You haven't given me what you promised. You haven't. I, I thought I'd get a land of milk and honey being a believer, and I've had nothing but suffering and sorrow. You haven't kept your promise. You, you brought me this far to kill me. You brought me this far to take me out. They attributed evil to God's motives. And, and Scripture is very clear what God thinks about that. If there's anything that offends Him is when we flip why He's... Do- you ever do that? Where you do something for somebody and then they flip the motive of why He did it? How do you feel? Oh, that How you feel is exactly how God feels when we do it to Him. All right? And so it says, in this particular instance, they were uh, going back and saying, oh, if we were just back in Egypt, that was the land of milk and honey. Boy, we had it made there. We had all kinds of leeks and onions and garlics. In other words, great savory soups. And we had meat to eat. Out here in this desert, all we have is this stupid manna. Right? And they, they use words worse than that. So if you say, I'm using better, they were way worse words than that. Right? And, and they were saying, yuck. And God says, oh, you want meat? Okay, I'll let you have meat. And so he filled the camp with meat. And it says that the stoutest among them died, about 25,000. It was just a disaster. They got what they craved, but it killed them. You know, and that's true of sin. If you go to sin, right, Romans chapter 3, very simple. The wages of sin is death. The payday of sin is always death. And it will kill us today just like it killed them back then. And what it says set them up for this was their, if you look at that passage right there, it says they lusted exceedingly. Have you ever lusted exceedingly for something? Maybe a position, maybe a body, maybe um, some praise, maybe, uh, I mean, we can come up with hundreds of things, right? But have you ever lusted for something exceedingly? You said you had to have that thing more than God? Now, I could be really silly here, but what about that person sitting next to you? You ever tell God you had to have that person? Now you're complaining God gave them to you? That's where it cuts, right? This is what they're talking about. They lusted exceedingly. They had to have And so they got what they wanted, but they had leanness of soul. 
Second place where they rejected God was uh, in the book of Samuel, if they read. They came to Samuel and said, look, we don't like being Israel anymore. We're weird. Okay, we're not like everybody else. We're different. We're weird. So we we don't want to be like that anymore. Um, We don't want you as a prophet. We want a king. Give us a king. We want a king. We want to be like every other nation on the earth. We want a king to leave us. And Samuel was grieved on two counts. One, that they rejected him and his leadership. But two, um, uh, they, they, they were rejecting God. And so he went and prayed and God said, Samuel, let them have what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so God gave them what they want. And he gave them a king. And if you read about it, God very clearly laid out. Samuel says, go look and first. Again, fascinating thing to look into, but look at what Samuel says. Here's what will happen if you get the king. Here's all the things it's going to cost you. You will have everything you want, but guess what? You're going to have leanness of soul. As a nation, you're going to have lean, because the king's going to take 10% of your best crops. King's going to take 10% of your best produce. King's going to take 10% of your children, 10% of your daughters and your sons, and he's going to take all the best for himself, and you're going to be left with what's left over, leanness of soul. And if you read Israel's history as they got the kings, that's what they got. The third place where they rejected God, and this we talked about, but now we want to bring the point home, is they rejected the prophets. We don't like your confrontation. We don't like you calling out our sin. We don't like you calling sin, sin. We don't like you rebuking us. We don't like when we finally get a party going and we start to have some good time and loosen things up a little bit, you come down on us. And some madman out of the hills comes ranting and raving and starts talking and yelling about all the things we should or shouldn't be. We don't like, we don't want that anymore. So stop it. We're not listening. And if you bring them, we'll kill them. And that's what they did. And God said, okay, so you don't want prophets, then you will not have a prophet. And they didn't have a prophet in the nation for 400 years. No voice, no herald, no echo, nothing for 400 years. This is why, uh, you know, it's kind of like Joni Mitchell singing, right? You don't know what you got till it's gone. And if you're over 40, you're nodding your heads. You just gave your age away. The rest of you are going, what? Okay. Sorry. I had to use it, though. I liked it. Pave paradise and put in a parking lot. All right. Sorry. Rabbit trail. But here's the thing. In that stretch, they became exceedingly dry and exceedingly thirsty. They just became wiped out. And, And so they were aching. They were crying out for God under the impression they were having under the Roman government And that tells you why when John the Baptist showed up, he was such a rock star. John the Baptist was like something else. Thousands upon thousands of people came out of the cities and went into the wilderness to listen to John preach. I mean, it was like wildfire. Word spread. And John was like just off the charts popular. You know why John was so popular? He was the first prophetic voice in 400 years years he's back he's back there's a prophet god is speaking to us again and word went like wildfire and what was john talking about a messiah is going to come yes that's what we want to hear wow the leanness of soul is going to be gone rome is going to be cast off we will rule the world again this is awesome and you can understand why that hit like adrenaline okay they were buzzing off their shoes when john showed up Because he was the prophetic voice that they had not heard 
in 400 years. Now, we can talk a lot about Israel, and um, a lot of this stuff is very fascinating, but my question for us this morning is this. As we process all that together, if I were to ask you this morning, what's your level of presence with Jesus this morning? Are you as close to him as you want to be? you experience him the way you want to be? Or have you traded stuff for Jesus? And right now sitting here this morning, you're experiencing leanness of soul. I'm not going to measure it. I'm not going to give you a scale where you are. I'm, not going to, I'm just going to ask the question, what's your level of presence as you come into this Christmas season with Jesus this morning? Is it all facade? Is it all front? Don't pay attention to that man behind the curtain. Or is there presence there? Is there reality there? Does it work? Do you enjoy being in His presence? You know, um, leanness of soul can come in several different forms. First form uh, is obvious, is you've never met God. You can't have a relationship with somebody you haven't met. You can't have a relationship with somebody unless you agree to be in relationship with them. Right? Pretty hard to experience somebody's presence if you're not in their presence. And so one of the sides of that, that leanness of soul, maybe you just, you've never uh, known the Lord. You've never given your life to Christ. You're here this morning. You look nice. You act like you're a Christian. People would think you're a Christian, but really you don't know him. And what we're talking about is in the midst of this bankruptcy, in the midst of this leanness of soul, God came in history, came uh, as the person we know, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Perfect God, perfect man. And God had a plan and Jesus said he came to do exactly what his father said. And what God had laid out was a plan and said, you know what, we got a whole problem. There's a group of people on this planet and they're all covered and coated with sin and we can't redeem. The only way we're going to redeem them is if we redeem them ourselves. And so Jesus agreed and said he would come and he came and he was on this planet. Perfect man, perfect God, sinless. And he took our sins on the cross. It says that he died on that cross for our sins and carried the burden we could not carry, paid a debt we could not pay, and took that and then on the third day rose again from the dead. And Romans chapter 10 says that anyone who calls out to him will not be put to shame. In other words, if somebody's looking to be in his presence, he will not reject them. And it says what you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I know I've run my show, not you. And I, Lord Jesus, need to confess. I I believe in my heart you're who you claim to be. And I confess with my mouth that you're Lord. I.e., that's an authority transaction right there. You're Lord. You're the boss, not me. Many of us know what that's like, right? It's one thing to say, I want you in. It's another thing, I give you control. But you say, I give you control this morning. Would you come in and would you wash me of my sin? Would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? And all you've got to say is, you know what? Lord, I hear what Mitch is saying and it's true for me right now, this minute. I want to ask you into my heart. I want to say, and if you do, here's as simple as you do. Do it with your eyes open. Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my heart and save me. I want to be in your presence for eternity. I don't like being separated from you. I don't like knowing about you, but not knowing you. I want to ask you to come in my heart. Would you do so? I thank you for doing it. In your name, amen. If you did that, you come up and talk to me after the service, all right? By the way, appearances are deceiving. So, we'll stay with that. But here's the second one. You know where uh, 
Leanness of soul really comes from uh, backsliding. We choose sin over Jesus. We choose stuff over him. Um, Right now, in this time of schedule, I don't know how you are, but the schedule can be crazy, and you are probably running at about 900 miles an hour. Right? I know Pam and I are. We so enjoyed step by step. I still can't get the ground. I'm so glad it's over. Okay? We'll come back at it next year. Because, wow, work like mules on that thing. And uh, it was just roaring. But in that busyness, in that roaring, we can lose presence. We can go shallow. We can go thin. And we can backslide. And we start looking for other things to fill us or other things to please us instead of the Lord himself. And God says, um, hey, come back to me. Come back to me. You know, when we, what was great about last night, if you really boil it down, what was fantastic about last night was not our sacrifice or our generosity, although that was really cool. And by the way, I was so proud to be the pastor of you as a team of people. I stood there and just thanked God for you the whole time. It was magnificent. I loved every second of it. But what, that wasn't the greatest part. You know what the greatest part? It wasn't even all the people visiting and talking. That was phenomenal. You couldn't walk anywhere in this. As a matter of fact, I, I think it was Carissa was saying, you couldn't walk two feet and bump into ten people. Right? It was that packed. And uh, man, it was crazy fun. But that wasn't the best part of the night. You know what the best part of the night was? There was a sense of God's presence here. You could feel it in the building. It was all over the place. It was so crazy silly. People had grins on their face and couldn't stop smiling. They didn't even know why they couldn't stop smiling. It was fantastic. And people said, this is what I coveted and this is what we heard. We sensed God when we came here tonight. We had a couple come from Ziphaz. Ziphaz was very gracious. They partnered with us this year. I forgot to mention this first service. They partnered with us. And and one of the gals over there, her name's Terry, and uh, she said, I'll work with you. And uh, I, I have to decorate an office or two in the office anyway, so I'll come. And uh, so she opened up Ziphiz and John Harris set his talking Christmas tree outside. And then we put the two interpreters on the inside of Ziphiz. So when the kids came by, there was a tree talking to them, right, in Spanish and in English, which was really cool. And, uh, and they were just going back and forth. It was a hit of the night. So we had the talking Christmas tree, the hot cocoa, and then the live nativity scene. And... Um, it couldn't have happened without Ziphaz. Well, I went in and I talked to Terry and her husband, Mike, who just had a great time visiting. And I said, hey, if you get a chance, go on over. And I said, if you want, you can even sit at a table and they'll serve you a turkey dinner. So, you know, come and join us and just go take, if nothing else, come take a look. Well, they actually did. They came over and they walked through and they checked all the stuff on. I, I saw them as they were coming. I said, oh, you guys did come. They said, Steve, this is fantastic. This is like, we didn't, we had no idea what this was like. Like, you know what? I'm going to talk to Brian. Brian's the president. As if he said, I'm going to talk to Brian next year, and we're going to figure out how we can partner with you in this. That's the kind of presence it had. Okay? It was spectacular. You know, if you think about it, one of the absolutely worst things in life, one of the most awful realities, and as I put this into words, when I say it, you'll recognize it, one of the worst realities of a church is to be a church in Jesus' name but not have his presence. Have all the structure, all the right systems, all the right words, all the Sunday school answers, but not have his presence. That is an awful bankruptcy. And I don't know about you, but I not only won't do that, I can't do that. Okay? Either God gives us his presence or we die. Boy, and thankfully he's been kind, right? Thankfully he's been kind. So we're going to sing a song this morning. Actually, you're going to listen to a song in the first part. 
And so I'm asking the worship team to come forward. But uh, we're going to sing a song this morning that echoes this sense of no presence. And you will recognize it instantly. As soon as it starts, you'll go, oh. But I want you to listen to the song through the backdrop of what we just walked through. The backdrop of the nation is the political things going on time and the changes within the nation itself and the institutions that came up as a result of not having presence. And I want you to think about that in regards to our day and time. And I think it will lead you to the answers. I need to go back to Jesus. I need his presence. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, do this, first of all, thank you for your kindness. Thanks for last night. We, we say applause to you. It was an absolute glory and joy to let your glory leak out of us. And man, it was a spectacular deal. Lord, as we come into the season, it can all be about do's and don'ts and lists and have-tos and should-haves. And, um, and, and we know that there's, there's Hallmark movies about it. But the reality is we can go through the holiday and miss your presence completely. May that not be true. May that not be true for us individually. May that not be true for us corporately. May you, uh, your abiding presence be among us as we enter into this season. May it not be no presence. May it be your presence. And we ask this in your name. Amen.